Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Tess Latham. This is episode 73. It's Pakatwaya, the Kwabe story, which ends in blood and guts. Then we'll head down south for an update on the British administration in the Cape, which was not going according to plan. So in 1817, Shaka had been forced to flee his home as readers in Dwanwe attacked repeatedly and he found himself south of the Tugela. He needed to forge a stronger relationship with the people to the north, and in particular the Kwabe, who were found south of Mtlatuzi River near his mother's clan, the Langeni. What doomed Pakatwaya was the fact that his older brothers were grumbling about their treatment. He'd scuffled with his brother Normo while their father Kondlo was still alive. Normal was the heir designate, but Normal's mother was a Mtetwa, not a full-blooded Kwabe. The Kwabe powers thought that this disqualified Normal. Shaka was lurking by now, and some Kwabe had crossed over to join him, recognizing a powerful man in the making, I guess. One was Sapani Kaangungi, and the other was Ngaitu Kaangungi. Both cornered Shaka just before Pakatwaya was to face his sternest test. Shaka needed Pakatwaya's help. He was almost out of food. He'd burned his farms and a scorched earth act to stop Zwiri's impies from living off the land. But of course, that meant his own Zulu people were now suffering. There are a few stories about what happened next, and as I mentioned last episode, we need to hear them all because of the significance of oral history and how epic tales belie real events. One orally related tale says Shaka asked Pakatwaya for grain, but others say it was beads. Pakatwaya apparently demanded beads as payment for food, particularly the finely manufactured Nguele beads from the Tsongas near Delagoa Bay. The Tsonga were called the Entlengwa by the Zulu as an insult, just by the way. Shaka handed over the beads to messengers with the usual praises. Pakatwaya replied in kind, all good. Pakatwaya then pushed the envelope, say the storytellers, and demanded a shield and for some of the fat cattle of Matlabatini. Shaka handed them over along with a shield. Things then went pear-shaped. That Kwabe apparently insulted the cattle, saying there were too few. Worse, that Kwabe said the Zulu had rubbed a nasty form of medicine and entelezi into cuts on the base of the cow's tails. Shaka responded by sending a small group to set up a small settlement in Kwabe territory, a Ikanda, a military barracks, not really a homestead. This could have been Mbele Beleni. Remember, our last podcast, Shaka had been driven out of this place by Zwide, that Kwabe burned it down. The Zulu rebuilt it. That Kwabe returned and burned it down again. You can see where this is going. Shaka then appeared and committed the final act, which I'll describe in a moment. Some Zulu, though, tell another story today, although most historians think this one is less likely. Shaka proposed a dance, an Umjadi dance, but Pakatwaya scoffed and said, How do you hope to surpass me, son of Sinzangakona? I will not dance with a man whose forces are no greater number than the few beads needed for a necklace with that little Ntungwa fellow from upcountry whose penis stands erect, which was somewhat of an insult. Others are a little more descriptive, and sensitive listeners may want to cover their ears. Pakatwayo, say some oral storytellers, actually said this. The little Nguni who wears as a penis cover the fruit shell used for snuff boxes? Ha ha ha! Where did he get an impi from? Is the impi from upcountry like the rain? It is nothing but a little string of beads that doesn't even reach the ears. The Nguni, who when mixing food, holds it in his left hand and his spoon in the right and has to hit the dog with his head. <laughs> Horrors. That implied that not only was Shaka's uh, tackle underwhelming, but his wealth too. Whatever the truth, 
There are two main stories for what happened next. In one, Pakatwayo agrees to the dance. Shaka goes to Mtandeni, somewhere in the vicinity of Ishawi today, leaving his assegais hidden in a nearby river. Shaka's dancers arrive, dressed to party, his men dance well, then the Kwabi dance in greater numbers, and Pakatwayo yells, We have stabbed them! By which he means, we dance better. Shaka is insulted, pretends to go home, but instead his men retrieve the weapons from the river, return at dark, and Shaka spears Pakatwayo, and that's that. The other version features Shaka using a roving medicine man called Mkayana to manufacture a deadly mixture made of hyena dung, dirt from the famous dance floor, and other intelezi meds. They plop these meds into grass baskets, then drop them into the Kwabe drinking water. Shaka's impi duly pitches up. The Kwabe men mess themselves in fear because the meds are working, and Pakatwayo dies of shock. Some say this battle took place near Kwa Shoko Shoko Hill, about four kilometers north of Ishowi, close to Zimbambeli Primary School today. Either way, Pakatwayo was now dead, and the Kwabe Konzid Shaka. Some say, as usual, that Shaka then filled a local gorge with their bodies, which is claptrap. The Kwabe were treated like most other vanquished peoples. Their men were inducted into the new Zulu system. The women and children were still living in their umuzis alive. It's true, though, that Shaka had a systematic problem with the Kwabe. They had leadership disputes that predated Pakatwayo's death. Standing, at least metaphorically nearby, was his friend Dingaswaya of the Mtetwa, the real power in the region, apart from Zwide. A struggle ensued, and according to Dan Wiley in his book Myth of Iron, this part of Shaka's story is much better documented than these other stories. Pakatwayo's grumbling older brother, Godolozi, thought it an ideal moment to shake things up. He was joined by other brothers, Godide and Vukubulwayo, as they headed off to Zwide of the Ndwandwe to conza him. As is often the case, the issue that apparently caused this, the main issue, was the taking of brides and a disagreement. Just to add a faint whiff of confusion, a man named Ngreto, who was a member of the senior house of the Kwabe, popped up to argue that he in fact was the true ruler of the people. You can imagine Shaka trying to sort out what was what and who was whom. Most popular historians of the bloody Shaka variety don't really mention his skill at negotiation too often. However, he was an extraordinarily canny negotiator, wily, socially adept. He read the room, so to speak. It wasn't all skopskit and donner. No, he was far more manipulative than just a bloke with a big spear, or a small spear, if you believe the Kwabi stories. Shaka heard the complaints, the grumbles, and then a bit like Abraham made his ruling. Godalozi was the rightful heir, he said. The brothers that sought support from Zwede got short shrift, because Zwede had eventually sent the brothers of Pakatwayo packing by pointing out that they didn't know who had the right to rule themselves. Worse than Dwanwe was saying behind these brothers' backs that they preferred warming themselves around fires instead of actually doing something noble like fighting. Some Kwabe stuck around at the Ndwanwe, yes, but Godolozi headed back to Shaka. So did his other brother, Godide. So, you have come back, said Shaka. Why did you pass by me? Shaka told Godolozi that he was wrong to presume the Zulu had destroyed the Kwabe, and that he should stay and take wives, procreate, and then gave Godolozi a large tuft of feathers called the Itlokolo as a mark of friendship and respect. 
Sadly, for Godolozzi, as much as he may have delighted at first in the happiness of procreation, Shaka killed him. But the Zulus say only because Godolozzi was a bully and took more pleasure in killing off his opponents amongst the Kwabe than actually procreating. Eventually, Ngaito was appointed as Kwabe regent by Shaka. We'll come back to Ngaito, Shaka, Zwili and Dingzwayo later. Right now, we need to swing back to the Cape. We left off in 1812 with the British governor, Sir John Craddock, having used the Boers to great effect in subduing the Albany Amatosa. He had named the new town of Grahamstown after his military steamroller, Lieutenant Colonel John Graham. Both men had happily sent the Trek Boers as their shock troops to rid the Albany thickets of the Amatosa and rebellious Khoikhoi. Jacob Kyler, the Utenhag Landros, had taken to appreciating the Boers' hard life and had changed his view from calling them a set of vagabonds and murderers to embracing their worldview. That was mainly because he had become a farmer himself, owning a vast acreage in the Albany region. Graham had also changed his tune. He had called the Boers the most ignorant of peasants, but after they had helped him empty the Albany thickets of the Amatosa, they were commended for their cheerfulness and alacrity. Ah, finer fellows there cannot be, he gushed further. The African Boer is by no means deficient in point of intellect and possesses many good qualities. Somewhat sanctimonious, perhaps, but at least he was no longer taking the European view about everything African, i.e. all savage and degenerate. Ironic, then, that the Boers did not respond in kind. By now, they had watched the British flip-flop all over the country like half-dead trout and had learned to take whatever London or Liverpool was offering with a large pinch of Indian Ocean salt. By this time, the brilliant botanist William Birchall began trekking around the Sneerbach in 1812, and the Boers were responding with a hateful refusal to offer hospitality, virtually unheard of before this. Belligerent suspicion greeted Birchall's arrival in a country that was unhappy that he had koi-koi guides. As he approached Graf Reinet, the Boers there armed themselves and rumours spread once more that the British were going to press-gang them into maritime service as cheap sailors using the koi and mixed-blood soldiers of the Cape Regiment as their vehicle of change. By now the Trek Boers were paranoid about the koi koi, and even more so about the British. This paranoia was going to cause more than a century of conflict, and later, during the Boer War of 1899-1902, the British would use Cape Koi and mixed-race drivers, engineers, and even soldiers, further reinforcing this old fear. That's for later. Right now, Sir John Craddock had another surprise for the Trek Boers. He wanted a new rule of law and a new currency. The old Dutch VOC paper and coin was still in circulation but was devalued against the sterling. Dutch was the language of business and the English wanted English. Graham began to dream up a wonderful future where the rolling landscape of the Albany region, the Eastern Cape, was full of new settlers. He wanted to concentrate the new settlers into villages instead of the Trekboer's scattered farms. He wanted European civilization to take root. All this must be the work of time, he wrote in 1812, but the sooner we begin the task, the better. The Dutch system included the old Dutch East India Company practice of handing out loan farms, as you know. This system meant claimants could make an application for a farm, which they had measured by simply riding out in all directions from a certain point for at least six hours. The entire system discouraged settlements or villages, or indeed proper farming. 
Graham believed that the loan farms had encouraged the Boers to extend the colony too rapidly beyond governable limits, and that their thin distribution over vast areas made them vulnerable to both San and Causa raids. He was right, of course, but identifying an illness is very different from treating it. It also made the Boers more independent and fractious with a contempt for authority. The British loved order and authority, so naturally the loan farm system had to be changed. Many frontier Boers didn't even bother registering the loan farms. They just moved onto the land and laid claim verbally. Or they just chased out the Khoi or the Amakosa already on the land and claimed they'd done so because they were Christians and the defeated were heathens. Governor Craddock announced that the informal acquisition was a profane waste of land. By 1813, he began a process to halt loan farming expansion. This system was going to be abandoned. Craddock said the land was the colony's main resource and should not be wasted on spendthrift Boers who looked like squatters. The Boers paid very little, if any, rent, and Craddock wanted them to become landowners in the European sense. Then they'd pay rent, and he could hire more bureaucrats to run the whole system. It's an old government trick. Create a new system to create new jobs for your friends, your people, could we say, deploy your cadres. He wanted the Boers to stick to their farms instead of drifting about towards new horizons, and he wanted them to develop this land. So instead of the loan farm system, he introduced something called perpetual quit-rent. New land grants were hereditary, so the owners could sell them, providing increased security of tenure. Any farmer who spent time and money on developing their land would get their money back, plus profit, on its sale. Farms were to be properly mapped, and beacons planted in the soil, and rents were adjusted according to size and quality of land. This meant rent immediately went up. All in the name of development, you know, an ancient concept rooted in a more modern British banking system of profit and loss. While Craddock swanned around his Cape Town residence, blinking in the African light, talking up this wonderful idea, the Boers reacted with utter shock. Two hundred years of history on the land brushed away with the stroke of an English quill. This economic and financial revolution alarmed the Trek Boers at the same time were facing the circuit courts I mentioned a few podcasts ago. That's where their own servants and slaves were supposedly now able to go to court when they were abused. Two fundamental freedoms had been eviscerated, the right to move around the land and the right to treat and beat their own Khoi servants as they pleased. While the landed Boer gentry of the Western Cape, the Swellendam and Stellenbosch folks, shook their heads and muttered at church, the frontier Boers exploded in fury. They had led expansion across that frontier for a century and rebelled in 1795 and 1799, and Craddock's plans shook their foundations. In these outer reaches of distant, wide, lonely, mountainous spaces, the semi-desert flatlands, the Karoo, the lowlands of the Kharip or Orange River, or Bushmanland, as it was called, a new bitter, disgruntled Boer began to appear a new social class of people, a new political people. These Boers had felt the hardship of frontier wars, sand raids. They saw this region as rough, unwanted land, with its waterless plains, a poverty of wealth which turned into a treasure of experience, a trove of fireside tales. Martinus Prinsloo was to emerge as a hero of these firesides, 
After all, he'd already shouted to a Dutch East India Company official in 1795 that he should come to Achter Branky's Hoogte to see how our women and children must dig for roots to get food, like the San and the Koi. Most of these distant frontier trekboers had never paid their rent on time because they had no money. When Craddock flourished his quill, increasing taxes, it blew over these frontier folk like a blast of rancid air, threatening their very existence. Craddock had not thought this through. And so, folks, 1813 was an explosive year in Southern African history. Men whose own sons, by mixed-blood wives, by coy women, would now be in a superior position to the Boers. Their grandfather's lackadaisical approach to human rights were no more. The land on the horizon was no longer there for the taking. It was a sudden realization that the British overlords, the British soldiers' boot, was on their necks. As in the case with ironies of history, exactly 100 years later, the Land Act of 1913 limited African land ownership, restricting black people from buying or occupying land, except as employees of a white master. Back in 1813, by the way, one of these British soldiers' boots on the necks of the Boers was not going to be worn by Lieutenant Colonel Graham. He was sent back to the European theatre of war in Portugal. After his pen flourish, General Craddock resigned as governor of the Cape and left. The new governor, who had to administer the system, was Major General Lord Charles Somerset, who arrived in early 1814, waving Craddock goodbye as he headed off into the setting sun and retirement. On the eastern frontier, seething boers gathered, and they were going to welcome Somerset with the smell of gunpowder. The Amakosa had shown the trick boers how a proper rebellion worked, and they also knew what to expect from the British deception. So it really all started in April 1813 when a koi koi lad by the name of Boy, employed on the notorious Besaidenhout clan farm, ran away and complained to the 21-year-old Graf Reinet deputy Landrost Andri Stockenström that Friedrich Cornelius Besaidenhout had beaten him. Of course, you remember Andris, whose father Anders was killed by the Kosa during the recent rebellion. Boy was persuaded back to Friedrich's farm by Stockenström. For the next two and a half years, the youngster ran away repeatedly. Besaidenhout complained, but Stockenström ordered him to Graf Reinet to face a hearing. Besaidenhout refused. The lad went back, and then repeat. This could not continue. Finally, in October 1815, Besaidenhout was sentenced in his absence to one month in jail, and a posse, or commando, was sent to bring him in. Upon hearing this, Friedrich Cornelius Besaidenhout is reported to have shouted, What does Stockenström think? I care for my life just as much as nothing. Or as Simba said in The Lion King, I laugh in the face of danger. Stockenström had already written that he regarded the Besaidenhout as men of the most depraved morals, so we could safely say they didn't hang out at Bry's together. The Besaidenhout lived with Kosa women, said Stockenström. Friedrich Cornelius's wife was a mixed-blood woman. He had a son with her, but this wasn't a normal family because Friedrich's son had to call him master. So the posse rolled into view in October 1815, and Besaidenhout ordered his son and his wife to help him fight the authorities, which they did, reloading his musket as he opened fire on the posse, but he was killed. A funeral was arranged, 
At the grave site dug in the middle of a flat, hard plain in the middle of nowhere, his brother Johannes Poseidon had swore vengeance. Now Johannes was probably even tougher than Friedrich, even more of a maverick. But he didn't own any land, merely drifting around running other Boers' farms, so he didn't really worry about having any of it taken away. Johannes didn't actually own anything, but this story is so deeply woven into South African Boer narratives, minor quibbles, like a man who didn't own land complaining that the British were taking it away, was quietly forgotten in the heat of the moment. Unfortunately for the British, Johannes's cry was picked up by one of the Prinzlers, Hendrik, son of Martinus the rebel. He incited Johannes, who needed no second bidding, and so Johannes set off on his anti-British crusade, riding around the country drumming up support. However, the generally quiet life-loving Boers didn't immediately respond. They were initially reluctant to support Johannes the troublemaker. But as they say, once you've heard something, you can't unhear it, and Johannes and Hendrik Prinzler said the English were God-forgotten tyrants and villains, and that they should be driven into the sea, because they seemed to prefer the Koi to the Boers. The rebels then hit on an old idea. Why not approach the Kosa to form an alliance to drive the British back from whence they came? Then both peoples could shoot elephants and exchange cattle and beads and firearms and gunpowder and horses, just like the old days. Prinzler met up with some Kosa visitors, who were not supposed to be travelling west of the Fish River, but they had just ignored the British. He propositioned them with his new plan for Eastern Cape domination. They promptly told him to go talk to the chiefs and refuse to carry any messages anywhere. Three Boers, Johannes Poseidnot, Friedrich Prinzler, and a man named Botma, rode off to confer with the Nika, who we know well by now. The young chief listened patiently to their statement, which was somewhat of a thumbsuck. They claimed that a force of 600 Hollanders had arrived in the country to assist, and they were going to throw out the British, and that the Boers and the Kosa could conduct a joint assault by forcing the British all the way from Graf Renet to Algoa Bay, and then back to the Cape. Ingrika had just seen his uncle in Flambe and followers thrown out of the Zurfeld, aka Albany region. He saw the British soldiers. He was kept up to date about Cape Town events, so he naturally made no comment or commitment, saying he would talk to Nslambe and the other chiefs. As we'll hear next episode, Besaidnot and Prinzler and Botma didn't just leap back on their horses, they leapt to a conclusion that the Kosa would join the uprising. You have to wonder at their grasp of reality. The Kosa had just seen the British forces throw their own brothers out of the region, assisted by the Boers, now the Boers were supposedly suggesting that the Kosa and they would work together to throw out the British. Even members of the Prinzler clan refused to join this so-called uprising. It was so ramshackle. Although, as you'll hear in next episode, Johannes Besaidnot's personal threats did convince many to sign up. Hark! What is that sound? It appears to be the hammering of nails into a coffin or perhaps the sound of a gallows being constructed. With that, we end for this episode. Next, you'll hear what happens to Prinzler and Besaidno, and it's their fate upon which the foundation of an emergent Boer Afrikaner nationalism was built. It's called Slachter's Neck. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there, at deslatham. Until next... Tutsis.